0: Good morning. We get to start a brand new series this morning. You ready? All right. Hey, we're going to talk about what it means to be happy. You kidding me? Did you know that uh, in the Christian faith, there is room for happiness? And there better be. Amen? All right. Hey, we are looking over the next uh, few months uh, of the greatest sermon of all time, the greatest sermon ever written, ever preached, and we have Jesus declaring the kingdom of God to the crowd on the side of the mountain, and we are going to begin a nine-week series in the B. Attitudes the b attitudes that 's an, an interesting word, and that word comes from Latin. Now I gave the nine o 'clock a little history lesson, and i 'll make it real short uh, you 're going to get a lot of Latin words oftentimes thrown into the Christian faith uh, simply because Latin was uh, one of the main languages at one time, and there was a really, really important Bible written from Greek into Latin called the Latin Vulgate, and a lot of our English translations are taken from the Latin uh, into the English now over time. We have a lot of English uh, translations now taken just from the earliest manuscripts of the Greek. But all you need to know is our faith has a lot of Latin in it simply because of church history and Bible translation history. And this is one of them Be attitudes. And Webster's defines this word uh, Beutus. Right, beatus is a better way to say that if I can say it right the second time. Comes from the 15th century Latin word, and here's what it means. A state of unmost bliss, or just happy. So, what the word beatitudes means, is happy. The Greek equivalent, which is what we are going to study on this nine-week series, is the word makarios in the Greek, which is translated happy, blessed, or fortunate. And so we're going to spend the next few months looking at Jesus, explaining what it looks like to be happy, what it means to have kingdom happiness. Now, I'd like a show of hands. Who in this room wants to be happy? Raise your hand real high. Raise your hand real high. You want to be happy. The good news is God is, in some way, in a lot of ways, concerned with Happiness. Now, it's not the same circumstantial happiness, it's not the same worldly happiness that we have grown accustomed to pursuing, but it is a genuine, nonetheless, happiness that God desires for the citizens who inhabit His kingdom. God is concerned with happiness. As a matter of fact, uh, God isn't the only one concerned about happiness. The founding fathers of the United States of America were concerned with happiness. When the tyrants across the sea Uh, were uh, wreaking havoc on the colonies, Uh, we had the founding fathers come together and draft up the Declaration of Independence. So this is some wartime stuff, and so you expect in this document to find some wartime language, right? some very strongly worded language declaring their independence and their right to own land and freedom. But it's interesting to hear what they had to say when they wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's some war language right there, isn't it? I want to be happy. Our culture wants to be happy, doesn't it? Society has always desired to be happy, to pursue happiness, But the problem is, we need to understand biblically that not all happiness is created equal. we got to understand that there's a real divide when it comes to the word happy. There is a worldly happiness that can be defined through circumstantial happiness. Happiness that happens when something good happens in your life. You get a raise, you get a new job, you find the one, you know what I'm saying? All right. Those are happy things, right? And we should understand that all good gifts come from God. And so God isn't against circumstantial happiness. But God has never desired that our happiness and that our fulfillment in him is found through circumstances alone. But the problem is, in our world's definition of happiness, that is the, that is the definition of happiness. That I need to create as many circumstances that get me here as I can to keep me happy. But the problem is we understand worldly happiness, circumstantial happiness. It gets us here, and then we fall off. And it gets us here, and then we fall off. And we continue searching for the high of happiness that the world tells me is my goal. And then we recognize, even as Christians, that we live a life of, uh, of sporadic happiness, sporadic joy. Uh, and we recognize there's got to be something wrong, or there's got to be something more when it comes to happiness. As a matter of fact, there is because there's the biblical definition of happiness. There is a kingdom definition of happiness that isn't based on circumstance. It's based upon your position in the kingdom of God. It's based upon you owning the poverty that is your humanity, recognizing your need for Christ to be in the kingdom of a holy perfect, just, loving God. That there is a kingdom that God has prepared, and those who belong in it are those who are in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to own up to the poverty that you have and that you exist in. And you own up to your poverty. You see Jesus as the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Then you turn away from yourself, and you turn to God, and you receive the kingdom. That's Where kingdom happiness begins. And then my happiness isn't based on circumstances in this world, but it's based on an unshakable consistency of the kingdom of God. And you see where that happiness gets you consistence. It gets you to the reality that in God's economy, my life is sealed. In God's economy, my family is sealed. In God's economy, the church is awaiting for a savior who is Christ, who's going to come and to rule and to reign. And that, my church, what is there not to be happy about? The problem often happens when we confuse kingdom happiness with worldly happiness, and we try to somehow bind up worldly happiness with kingdom happiness, and yet we never can truly find happiness. And then that kind of worldly happiness comes over and gets into the church, and then we sit and say, well, why can't I be happy even in my own church? The reason is is because we need to unwind these two definitions and we need to leave that one over there, which can have some God blessings in them. There can be some happiness in these circumstances, but they can't be where we derive the majority of our happiness. or That is not where we ought to put our focus when it comes to kingdom happiness. We keep it on the kingdom of God. And we are spending the next nine sermons in the Beatitudes on that exact concept Because without a biblical definition of happy, you may never enjoy true happiness that God desires for all of his children. That's the real danger here, isn't it? That you will not get to enjoy true happiness, true blessedness, because you have the definition of happiness all wrong. Because kingdom happiness, at least maybe you want to write it down, maybe in a small, summarized way. Kingdom happiness belongs to those who own up to their spiritual poverty and give themselves over to the riches of Christ. Kingdom happiness belongs to those who own up to their spiritual poverty and give themselves over to the riches of Christ. In this series, Matthew is giving us five statements, or nine statements in Matthew 5. We are given a list of nine statements that describe the Christian's life in God's economy. You hear that? They describe the Christian's life in God's economy, not the world's economy. You see, that's that's something else we need to define. There is the world's economy, and there is God's economy. There's how the world says you're going to be happy, and there's how God says you're going to be happy. And too often, many Christians know how the world tells me to be happy and know how the world defines happiness and even can tell you ten ways in which you can pursue worldly happiness. But how many Christians can define happiness in God's economy? How many Christians and how many churches can say, in God's kingdom, this is what happiness looks like. In God's kingdom, with God's kingdom people, this is what it looks like to pursue happiness or to at least have the happiness that you have as a citizen of God's kingdom. So we're going to look at these nine adjectives, these nine descriptions over the next few weeks. And the first one we want to look at is in Matthew 5, 3. If you're not there already, I want to encourage you, turn to Matthew 5, verse 3. Matthew 5, verse 3. Here in Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or makarios, happy are, those, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we define the word blessed as makarios, happy, blessed, Fortunate. Right, and you may have heard the saying, I've said the saying, you've probably said the saying before, that God isn't primarily concerned with your happiness. Right? He, he's concerned with your joy, maybe, you've said it that way. You try to, to, you try to split the word joy and happiness. And you say, God's not primarily concerned about my happiness. Well, that is partly true. As a matter of fact, it is true that God isn't primarily concerned with your circumstantial happiness. Right? It's not God's primary concern in your life. However, we can't say that God isn't concerned about our happiness. Because God, you understand, is the governing head of the kingdom of God. And as any government head should be, any good, right, benevolent, loving government head is going to be concerned with the happiness of the citizens that inhabit his kingdom. And so in a real way, God is concerned with the happiness of his kingdom residents. But, as a good governing head will do and should do, always requires and leads his kingdom residents to the laws that govern the kingdom, that lead to kingdom happiness. And so we must understand in God's kingdom, as he is the head of his kingdom and his government, that there is a way in which God does desire our happiness, but it's according to his economy and not our world's economy. Christians should truly expect happiness that is not dependent on worldly circumstances. You should, as a Christian, receive happiness, not based on the world's economy, but on God's economy. Not based on worldly realities, but kingdom realities. You can sum it up that way in point number one. You should expect kingdom happiness. Right, those who are poor in spirit, who have come to know Christ, through turning from their sins and placing their trust in him, who are eagerly, eagerly awaiting the kingdom to come, should be expecting kingdom happiness in their lives even today. Because we recognize that kingdom happiness, it stands in contradistinction from circumstantial happiness. and We've talked about it. We need to drive it home as we give an introduction to this sermon series. We need to recognize there are two different things. And if if you're thinking that God's desire for you is always to have circumstantial happiness, you don't have a good biblical worldview. Because we understand that scripture says that it rains on the just and the unjust. The the sun, it shines on the just and the unjust. We recognize when it comes to circumstances, that isn't God's foundation and definition for our happiness. It is a good and blessed and wonderful thing to have circumstantial happiness. I got to welcome circumstantial happiness in my life four months ago. And his name is Titus. And I love him. He's a great circumstantial happiness. But you know what? Sometimes at night, he is not circumstantial happiness. (laughs) And if I derive my happiness from from the circumstances of that child, that is a puny, puny source of happiness. And it is never going to lead me to the kingdom happiness that God has for his children. We can't derive our happiness from our circumstances. We must derive our happiness from kingdom realities. You see, the world, that looks at happiness through the lens of circumstance, and it leaves them spiritually bankrupt. And that's an important part of your Christian faith, is to recognize that pursuing circumstantial happiness will leave you bankrupt. There is no other end in the world economy when it comes to happiness other than spiritual bankruptcy. Because all things that lead to worldly happiness will end up in spiritual bankruptcy. It will either be at the time of the judgment... When Christ comes, or most of the time, it happens way short of that, doesn't it? You pursue an inappropriate, maybe an unhealthy relationship, ends up spiritually bankrupt, six to 12 months, right? Uh, You make a bad investment with your finances, usually be really, actually bankrupt in six to 12 months, maybe 24 I mean, if you're looking at finding your happiness through circumstances, you're going to be spiritually bankrupt, and it can be now and it can be in the future, but you must know it's coming. But the believer, the Christian, the disciple, is someone who finds their happiness from their spiritual status in Christ. It's someone whose happiness is derived from their status in God's economy. And their status in God's economy, although when it comes to real worldly realities, they're poor in spirit. And often people who are poor in spirit inwardly, particularly in Scripture, are often outwardly poor as well. James talks to us about that. You know, blessed are the actually poor because they recognize their need for Christ. Because their needs are great before them and they know their need is great in them. But the reality for those whose spiritual status is in Christ, the circumstances aren't the most important. Their position in the economy of God is of utmost importance. They walk uh, within the kingdom people as children of the Most High. You see, the Christian in God's kingdom has inherited the kingdom itself and all of its blessings and the most prized treasure in heaven, and that is Christ. You see, when it comes to kingdom happiness, although you may be poor in spirit, you have everything. And you have promises of more that is to come. Now that is a foundation for happiness. That's a foundation for kingdom happiness that will not disappoint. But even throughout church history, and even before we get to the last of the pages in Scripture, we find churches who forget that very quickly. And I'd love for you to turn to one of those instances in Revelation chapter 3. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 with me. In Revelation chapter 3, we have a church that Jesus is talking to, a church in Laodicea in the Lycus Valley, a very well-to-do region, a very prosperous region, and we'll see that even here in the text. But to that church, this is what Jesus has to say. I know your works, there in verse 15. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth. The ESV makes out a very clean word. That word in Greek is vomit throw up. Jesus has this to say about that church. You are so lukewarm that I'd rather throw you up out of my mouth. It's a very interesting concept, lukewarm. We talk about lukewarm Christianity. Maybe you've heard that term. Something important about Laodicea, the community, is it's set in a valley. All right? And this valley allowed two things really, really cool to happen that you really, really wanted in in way of amenities during the first century. They had piping hot water from hot water springs that would flow into the city, They also lived in a valley, so they had the mountains uh, around them. They were also able to have glacial water, cold water, piped into the city. And if you don't know the benefit of hot water, you've never taken a nice warm shower. Uh, and if you don't know the benefit of hot water, you've never, uh, you've never taken a cold shower. So uh, the reality of the matter is hot water was really, really good for medicinal purposes. Uh, in that time, hot water was good for cleaning and purifying and washing. And cold water was great for drinking, and among other things. And so this city had a lot of really, really, really great assets to it. Uh, and the water was one of them. But here was a problem. As the water flowed from the mountain, and as, as the water came out of the underground hot springs, it would take a while for them to flow to where they needed to get to. And if the water took too long, the hot water got cool, and the cold water got warm. And so when the water got to where it needed to go, it was lukewarm. It was no longer good for anything. The hot water wasn't good for what they used hot water for. The cold water wasn't good for what they used cold water for. So you know what they had to do? Throw it out. They had to get rid of it. You see there was a purpose for both of them, but Jesus is saying here, you guys aren't good for anything. You're not being purposed for anything, and there's a reason why. Let's keep reading. For you say in verse 17 that you're rich, that you have prospered and that you need nothing. See, that is something in Laodicea that was a real tragedy since it was a very prosperous place. A all the way up until the earthquake that happened uh, a little bit around the time of the writing of Revelation, an earthquake hit the Lycus Valley and completely destroyed Laodicea. But up until that point, they were very rich, very prosperous. And the church bought into the lie of circumstantial happiness and circumstantial riches. The church bought into it and they started becoming, they started focusing on riches and prosperity. Uh, and here's what, here's what Jesus said. For you say you're rich and you're prosperous and you need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that was the real state of those people in Laodicea, particularly the church forgot the inward condition of the human life and the human heart. And so Jesus takes them away from circumstantial realities and shows them, hey, this is who you are internally without the treasure of Christ. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you're going after these things, which is proving the fact that you don't have a focus on kingdom realities. You have a focus on earthly realities. But here's Jesus being the kind, gracious God he is. Look what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He's saying those things are going to leave you bankrupt. But if you would buy those things from me, you would come to me as your source. You would come to me, not the world, not Laodicea, if you would come to me, buy gold refined by fire for me, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. There's another reality that Laodicea had. They were real big into the textile industry. They had, I think it was a purple yarn that was very, very rare and very hard to find. And they had plenty of it in Laodicea. And Jesus saying, you think you have nice clothes, but you don't realize before God you're naked and exposed. And the reality is if you want to be clothed before a holy God, you must be clothed by me. And I am the only one who can clothe you with white garments, unstained garments, undefiled garments, which is the only garments that will be worn in the kingdom of God. And he says that I want to clothe you so that you won't have their shame or nakedness exposed. A lot like Adam and Eve in the garden when they were naked and afraid of God. And then God slain animals and then clothed them so they would no longer be naked and afraid. The only one who can clothe the realities of your poverty is God. And the only way God has allowed us to be clothed in righteousness is through the righteousness of Christ. And then he continues and says... Uh, I want to cover your nakedness and I want to give you an ointment to put over your eyes because you're blind and I want you to see. I want you to notice something here. Jesus didn't say it's wrong for you to want any of that stuff. It's wrong for you to want to be happy. It's wrong for you to do any of those things. It's not what he said, is it? He says you need to get those things from me. You don't get those things from the world. You get them from me. All the things that he just said they were going after, he said, you can find those things in me. Are they going to be the exact same thing, apples to apples? Probably not, of course not. But you're going to find the realities of happiness far greater when you pursue the kingdom of God than you do by following the kingdom of the world. And he says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I love this. He's like, I want you to come back. He's like, you may be a wayward church, but I want you to turn around, and I want you to come back, and I want you to come to me. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and he will eat with me, and I will eat with him. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Do you hear that? The one who conquers, the one who conquers this life through the blood of Jesus Christ, he's inviting him into the kingdom of God to reign and to rule with him. Come on, we're talking about real kingdom happiness here. We're talking about gold that's going to perish in a few years. And he's talking about ruling and reigning with him in the kingdom forever and ever and ever. I mean, that's some real longevity and happiness right here. He says, I'm going to grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This may be a real wake-up call for maybe some of you in this room who have so often pursued the things of the world, worldly happiness, circumstantial happiness, not realizing that those things are found in Christ alone. And the same call to the church in Laodicea is the same call that he gives you and I. Repent, turn to me, and buy from me gold refined by fire. Come to me for clothes. Come to me for white, spotless robes that the kingdom inhabitants will be wearing to signify the righteousness that they have that is not on their own, but comes from me. The people in my kingdom will see. They won't be blind. But the people in my kingdom must recognize something, that they can't get there on their own, that they can't find God through riches, and they can't find God through circumstantial happiness. They only find God through Christ, and the people who find Christ are the poor in spirit. That is actually a cohort of people in Scripture who almost always receive the offer of kingdom happiness. I find it so uh, compelling when I'm reading the Gospels that there's always these people, always these people that, that see Jesus and they receive even in a microcosm. Remember last week we talked about it, even though uh, when Jesus was doing these miracles, he was doing it to show them the realities of the kingdom. And there are always these people who received, even in a microcosm, the realities of the kingdom in their life, even if it were temporarily. And it's always the people who are poor in spirit. Those are the people, when Jesus came, they always received what Jesus was giving. And I find it amazing because the people who were well-to-do or the people who were just the average Joes oftentimes, they didn't get to receive them. It was always those people that no one wanted to be around. And you know why? It had nothing to do with the fact that these people on the outside had maladies and issues. That wasn't the main concern The main concern in those people's lives is just that the outward maladies these people had matched the inward maladies that they had. You understand. The reality is the inward maladies that we all have are the same. It was just easier for those who were outside of... The cultural norms. It was those who were the outside of the popular groups. Outside of those who got to be involved with things in society. They were so much more keen and prone to understand their inward maladies. But over and over again, Jesus reached out to those people. Answered the prayers of those people. It was those people who were at the end of their rope. Who accepted that they were in need of deliverance. Who received the happiness of the kingdom. It was the poor, wasn't it? The blind, the lame, those who were imprisoned on account of the Lord. Even children, who we'll look at in a minute. They all recognized their low status in society, and they recognize that they needed deliverance. You see, happiness in God's economy, it belongs to those who can recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. That's who kingdom happiness belongs to. People who can look at their life and recognize you may not have outward maladies, but you have inward maladies. And you not recognizing your outward maladies is oftentimes the reason you can't receive the kingdom of God because you don't see that you have inward maladies. You don't see that you have an inward need for the kingdom. But there's coming a time where outwardly you're going to recognize you need the kingdom when the kingdom's coming and you're not a part of it. But our prayer is that God would open our eyes outwardly to see that we have a need inwardly my prayer isn't that you have necessarily that you have to have bad things happen to you on the outside that you have to become poor and blind and lame and imprisoned and paralyzed to see your need for the kingdom but you know what's very interesting you know when people know they need God when something bad happens isn't it when chaos happens when misfortune strikes when a loved one dies what happens you start reconsidering things don't you the unfortunate part about that is it often takes these disasters in your life th- to recognize that on the outside, I'm poor and I'm broken, and it makes you start thinking, you know what, it's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. You see, that's why we see so many people in Scripture who had all these maladies could also see the realities of their inward need for Christ. And so many times the rich and the prosperous, when they met Jesus, they liked what he said, but they didn't see a need for it because they were blinded. Just like Jesus was saying to the church in Laodicea, you need to open up your eyes and you need to allow me to let you see that you have a need. And my concern in our culture is that we have so many people who can fend for themselves and meet their own needs that we are misguided that we are, there's a veil over our eyes to think that we can actually continually meet our needs and not recognize that that's a facade, that worldly pursuit is a facade of the real condition of your heart and your life. It's not just a heart, this isn't about an organ. This is about you as a human being that is being invited into the kingdom of God. And the people who are invited on the king, into the kingdom of God are those who recognize their wretched, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I want you to put it something like that on point number two. You need to admit your spiritual bankruptcy. Admit your spiritual bankruptcy. You do know we're talking about happiness, church. All right, we are talking about kingdom happiness. But I'm telling you, the only way you're going to have kingdom happiness is to admit that you can't be happy any other way. Is to admit there is no other way in life to receive the happiness that God desires in the life of the believer outside of admitting that on your your own, at the end of your own rope, you're bankrupt. You can't get it on your own. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn to another text, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're given two examples juxtaposed together to show you the people who get into the kingdom of God and the people who don't. And I think it's very telling Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting there in verse 13. And the people, they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. I want you to notice what this says. I want you to really think, okay? Because what this text is not saying is there is this level of holiness that a child has until they turn about 12. You know what I'm saying? And then after 12, they are then unholy, okay? As a matter of fact, scripture tells me that in the womb, infants were conceived into sin. So there isn't this sinful chasm. That exists between a child and and an adult. They're all equally sinful and separated from God. So we understand foremost that's not what it's saying. So what is it saying? Very clearly, to such belongs the kingdom of God. You know what children are? You know what children were in that culture? Bottom of the pile. Bottom rung of society. I mean, even Paul says that even a a wealthy man's child, although uh, it will inherit everything that his father has until he's an adult, he's just like a slave. That was just the reality. The children were of small, little standing in the world. So what did a child know? What does a child even in our culture know? They need mom and dad. They can't do it on their own. They recognize that outside of the care and nurture and provision of mom and dad, they're poor, wretched, naked, and without. Now in that context, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Those who recognize their need for Jesus. And Jesus says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them, saying, if you want to be like a child, I don't mean treat, act like a child, I mean genuinely be like a child who recognizes that they can do nothing on their own, that they need Christ to clothe them, to provide for them, to give them an entrance into the kingdom, that he'll, he'll take his hands, put them around you and bring you into the kingdom. But let's look, at a, let's look at the other section. Look at verse 17. Mark puts these together on purpose, and you're going to see why right now. So you have the children who don't even know what they're probably doing right there at the time, it's just about how ignorant children are about even the circumstances they're in. And now you have this rich young man, and watch what he does right off the bat. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He just gets to the point. He knows exactly what he's doing there. He's going up to Jesus and saying, Hey, I want to know. I know you're talking about this kingdom. I just want to know how I get in. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus is already laying some groundwork. Jesus isn't saying that he's not God. He's saying you're throwing around that word good like you know what it means. You're throwing around that word good like good. Your good, your definition of good is what's going to get you into the kingdom. So what happens then? You know the commandments, verse 19. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler, he said, Teacher! All of these I have kept from my youth. Well, he just lied, so he already broke the commandment that Jesus just said, do not bear a false witness, so he just lied. But Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You see, you recognize what's going on in this young man's life. Jesus, He's talking with Jesus. He wants into the kingdom, and Jesus is like, to get into the kingdom, you got to recognize that you don't measure up. And Jesus says, here's all the ways you don't measure up. And then he says at the end of that, I measure up. I'm good. I did it. I met the standard of good and righteous. And then Jesus, loving him, I love that. Jesus loved him. Jesus wanted people to know that they're separated and he's come to invite them into the kingdom if they would recognize that he's the answer and that they don't get in on their own. And Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The point here isn't that everyone at Compass Bible Church has to sell all their possessions, give it all to the needy, and then follow Jesus. That's not the point. The point in this text is simply this. This young man broke the first commandment. This young man loved the world more than he loved God. And Jesus pointed that out. Like, you haven't kept the commandments. You haven't kept the, you haven't kept the level of righteousness because you like your possessions more than you love me. And anyone who loves the world more than they love me is not worthy of me, is what Jesus says. And what happens? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, you can't get into the kingdom If you don't admit your spiritual bankruptcy. And that is the one thing that the young man didn't want to do. The young man wanted to say, I actually, I've done enough. I have enough. My life is enough to enter into the kingdom. And Jesus said, that stuff is worth nothing. As a matter of fact, if you want this kingdom, all the good things you've ever done need to be gotten rid of. And you need to recognize that I'm the only good that is going to get you into the kingdom of God. Are we on the same page there? That's the point, We have to admit that we're bankrupt spiritually, that we have nothing good to offer God for our entrance and our admittance into the kingdom of God. That's where kingdom happiness starts, you recognize. I I no longer don't derive my happiness because somehow I can do enough to be happy because I made it. I start at the end of my rope on my knees before the cross and say, I can't make it. I can't do it apart from you, Christ. And then the cross is proof of our sin being nailed to it. Christ taking our sin upon him. And then he says, now come to me. And then I have kingdom happiness because I I get it. It was never about me. It was never about circumstantial happiness. It was never about the world. It was always about the kingdom of God, and he gave me a way in it. So therefore... Church, what is there not to be happy about? That you have citizenship in a kingdom that was never yours. You are adopted into a kingdom that your blood kept you out of and Christ's blood put you into. You did not have the genetics. You did not have the clout. You did not have the DNA to give you admittance into the kingdom of God. But Christ did, and he gave it to us. What's there not to be happy about? So we can say, I can admit I'm spiritually bankrupt because I know that's where kingdom happiness begins. You know, it's not just those guys. You know, there's a lot of people in Scripture. Uh, The leper in Matthew 8, recognizing his spiritual bankruptcy, came and knelt before the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He didn't say, I deserve this, did he? He didn't say, "Uh, you owe me this. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. When he recognized his spiritual bankruptcy, he knelt before Jesus and recognized that his outward maladies matched his inward maladies, and only that Jesus could change that. The woman with the discharge of blood in Matthew 9, the very next chapter for this woman said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. What, what belief and what faith? I don't even need to talk to the man. I just need to reach out and touch the fringe of his garment, and I know that I will be healed. You know the kind of women in the first century reached out to touch the hymns of men? Not the ones you write home to mom about. What did that say about her? It said that she was willing to be shamed and disgraced to be able to get to Jesus. She was spiritually bankrupt. The two blind men outside of Jericho in Matthew 20, a few chapters later, in chapters 30 and 34, Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. This speaks to me a lot, because the last thing I'm about to do, if there's a crowd coming by and I'm on the side of the road, is start screaming out for anything. All right. I'm going to turn my back, and I'm going to pretend like I'm doing something completely different, and I don't even know they're there. Uh, why? Because I'm prideful, okay? Uh, and I, I don't want to draw. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like doing those kind of things. But these people, it's so amazing how spiritual bankrupt they knew they were. They saw the answer, and the crowd was coming, and they were blind. I mean, they, they were completely in utter disaster in their personal Lives and they knew the only way that we're going to get saved from this situation is by crying out. And he, they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. You just tell me who are the happy ones in these stories? Who are the happy ones? The ones who received the kingdom that Jesus was handing out. Those were the happy ones. The other people were wondering, what is this kingdom about? What, what is going on? They're trying to follow him to figure it out. These are following because they've realized it. Ah, he's got the power. He's got the keys to the kingdom. What about, what about a rich guy, though? What about Zacchaeus, who came before the Lord? He was broken, and he was ready to turn from himself and turn to Christ in Luke 19. We talked about a lot of the poor people, and a lot of the broken people, a lot of the external People who had issues and maladies and misfortunes in their own lives. But what about Zacchaeus? He was rich. Now, of course, he was rich by ill-gotten gain, but he was rich. He was well to do. He came to Jesus, he sought him out on the sycamore tree. And Jesus said, Is that you, Zacchaeus? Come down, we're gonna go eat at your place. He enters into his place, and Zacchaeus comes up and says, I'm broken. I'm utterly broken. He's like, I may have all these things around me, but I'm a fraud. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to turn to you and as fruit of turning to you and recognizing that you are the son of God, that yours is the kingdom, as a fruit of that, I'm going to give away, sell what I got. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to pay back on multiple, multiple accounts those I've done wrong. I'm going to give them more than I even took. As fruit of the salvation that he received, to coming to Christ. And this is what Jesus had to say about it. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he recognized his spiritual bankruptcy before Christ. And then Jesus says in verse 10, and I love it, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's the key, isn't it? He came to seek and save the lost. You want to Follow Christ, you want to get into the kingdom, you want kingdom happiness, you have to admit you're lost because those are the people Jesus is coming for. Now, I recognize that everyone is lost, but most people don't believe they're lost, which is the real work of evangelism and the real work of discipleship is leading people to lostness. Did you see that? We got to lead people to understand that they're lost. You can't be found if you don't think you're lost. We need to help people see that they're lost because that's who Christ came to save. There are so many people whose outward lives reflect the pursuit of happiness that they're going for and they don't realize that inward they need Christ. And it's our job as a church, and we'll get to that in a minute, to help people recognize that they're lost and that Christ has come to seek and to save those people. Because kingdom happiness comes to those who humble themselves and accept their need for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's that's the truth. Kingdom happiness comes to those who recognize they need Christ, who turn to him. And for all those who receive Christ, they receive something very important, the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to understand there's multiple reasons why it's important that we have the Holy Spirit. But in the concept of the kingdom of heaven, we need to understand, according to Ephesians, that the Holy Spirit is a down payment for our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a down payment for the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven for all of those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with us as the proof and the down payment of the heritage that we have waiting for us in the kingdom of God. But what do we need to do? We need to define what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? I define it this way. It's the power and rule of God in Christ, presently revealed through the church and fully revealed at the return of Christ. You want me to say that again? Okay. The kingdom of heaven is the power and rule of God in Christ, presently revealed through the church and fully revealed at the return of Christ. So there are... Two categories that you must look if you're going to be biblical about understanding the kingdom of heaven. There are two categories that you must include when you define the kingdom of heaven. The two are this: God's kingdom as the church, and God's kingdom as the eschatological reality of its coming. Okay, two categories. The local church, right? Let's make it real simple. The local church and the kingdom that is going to be revealed at the return of Christ. Those are your two categories. And you can't define the kingdom of God without both categories. Because one of the biggest concerns that I have is that Christians look at the church body, the corporate body, particularly a building, like it is an airport terminal. right? It's the place you got to go to to get where you're going, but it's really not the destination and I really don't enjoy it. Right? We go to the terminal because it was like, I gotta, if I'm going to get on the plane to the kingdom, i got to go to the airport terminal. And it's like, this is not the airport terminal. Right? You're already on the plane. You're already a part of the kingdom. This is the kingdom revealed through the local church. Proof, proof, here's the proof. When John the Baptist went baptizing, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming later. Is that what he said? He said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near, it's here. Then Jesus, he says, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The kingdom of heaven has been here since the arrival of Jesus. It was founded on the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets. But the apostles were given the mantle to spread the gospel and plant Churches, that's what you see in the book of Acts and in the rest of scripture, minus Revelation in the New Testament, is all about the story of the kingdom of heaven expanding on earth, and Revelation is the capstone and the culmination of the kingdom fully revealed. You just get some goosebumps, you should have, because the reality of the local church is it is God's kingdom revealed now. Okay? Proof. What, what does a kingdom need? It needs a king. And it needs a government. It needs an administration. And it needs laws. What do you find in the local church? Jesus is the king. Scripture is our governing document. He's given us the administration. He's given us leaders who govern the church, who lead it according to his, his law and his word. We have the kingdom in expressed the local church, and you must look at it that way. Because, friends, we're talking about happiness, aren't we? We're talking about happiness. So many times we see the church as something that it's not, and so we can't ever see it as the happiness and joy we should have in it. This is the kingdom of heaven expressed on earth as we await for Christ to come, and we should be happy about it. We should be focused on it. We should be thinking, wow, it's amazing that we don't just wait for the kingdom to come, although we are Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come, because that's when I have the down payment right now. It's down payment's nice, isn't it? You want a home, you got to put a down payment. Down payment's really nice. It's not the home, but it's the down payment. Okay, this is the down payment. This corporate body that we have is the happiness that we ought to be living in and pursuing as Christians. Your focus in so many ways here on earth ought to be, Focused towards the local church. I didn't necessarily just say Compass Bible Church, did I? I said, wherever you're listening online, wherever you go, where the Bible is being taught, there is a biblical governance, right? You have the kingdom of God. When the king is Jesus, when the governing documents is the word of God, and the administration is a biblical administration over your church, you found the kingdom of God on earth as it's awaiting the fulfillment of the coming of Christ and the revelation of his kingdom in the millennial kingdom and then the eternal kingdom to come. What I'm saying is you ought to enjoy the fact that you have fellowship with saints who will be with you in the kingdom eternal. And it has started since the moment that you turned from your sins and placed your trust in the Christ. You are a part of the kingdom and we're here and we're awaiting the coming of the kingdom. In its totality. I want you to put it this way, at least point number three, sum it up this way. You need to set your mind on the kingdom of heaven. Set your mind on the kingdom of heaven. All right, if you want to set your mind on the kingdom of heaven, you got to start focusing on the church. You understand. I mean, you have to start thinking, if you're going to think about the kingdom of God, you have to say, well, Jesus started it during the church age. That's where it started. That's why he said to Jesus, or he said to Peter, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, you can talk about Peter being the secession of popes. That's not what this is about. Jesus was saying, you know what the rock is? The rock is the truth that he said right before that. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said on that rock, on that truth and on that promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is the only thing the gates of hell will not prevail against? The kingdom of God. The local church is the expression here on earth of the kingdom of God. Can I, do I need to keep saying that? Are we all on the same page? Because I want you to see it. Because I don't, you, If you look at the bride of Christ like she's ugly, look in the mirror. That's the nicest way I can say it. Okay? The bride of Christ is the kingdom of heaven here, as it awaits the bridegroom, and you cherish her, you love her, you nurture her, you serve her. But look around; you are all part of that bride if you're saved in here. So we're not just talking. About, we're not talking about an institution. We're talking about the people. That's why the Bible talks about unity. And the necessity to care for one another. There's a whole list of New Testament imperatives called the one another's. And they're the things that kingdom people, kingdom citizens do for one another. Because they understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And they love the kingdom of God. And they love one another as they're awaiting the fullness of the kingdom to be revealed in Christ. So if you want to focus on the kingdom, you've got to focus on the local church. But you also need to focus on the coming kingdom. You truly do. I don't have time, but I have some time. I guess I'm going to make some time. All right, Hebrews 10. Just jot it down. Don't turn there. Hebrews 10, 32, 34. I want to show you a group of people who are focusing on the kingdom of heaven over worldly realities and worldly circumstances and how they not only looked past worldly circumstances for their happiness, they also partnered with one another to help them pursue the happiness of the kingdom together. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, the writer says, But I recall the former days after you were enlightened. So these Christians, they they, they became Christians. uh, And then here's what happened after that. You endured hard struggles with sufferings. Sometimes you are being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he's saying, you were being persecuted. You were being persecuted. And when you weren't being persecuted, you partnered with people who were being persecuted. What a picture of the kingdom. You know, so often if someone's being persecuted in our culture, we're like, I don't know, man. Like, they, uh, I don't know what they're doing. No, they said, they, you were persecuted, and then when you weren't being persecuted and they were persecuting, what did you do? You went over there and you said, I associate with these kingdom individuals. Because, keep reading, what happens? For you had compassion on those in prison, right? Those who were in prison for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you had compassion on them. And you joyfully, listen to this, accepted the plundering of your property. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. We're in Texas. There are laws if somebody puts their foot in your property, you're allowed to shoot them. These people joyfully accepted the plundering of their property for the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. But why? What does the rest of it say? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These things are passing away. This kingdom is failing and passing away. This home's going to be destroyed one way or the other. But my focus and my joy and my happiness is on the better possession and abiding one, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, when you're a believer with other believers in the room and you have a happiness and a joy that is derived from a kingdom that will not be shaken, what is left for us to not be happy about? We have a kingdom happiness because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we ought to set our minds on the kingdom because that's something to be happy about. Let's pray. God, my prayer for our church is twofold. God, one, I want us to see that your bride here expressed here locally in this church, and yes, in the other churches, but God, I'm I'm the shepherd of this flock, of of this church. And so God, this church in in as much God, and as much as I can, I pray, God, that you would have us set our minds on your kingdom, that your spirit would work that in us, and that they would see, open up categorically in their mind that the kingdom of heaven has been revealed in Christ, and Christ has founded the church, and this church is a heavenly reality here on earth, with you governing it as your head, as the head of this, because you are king. Over this church. Your governing document is the word of God in Scripture. But God, you have given us leaders to administrate this, God, and we're waiting for you to come bring the whole world under your administration. So let us love this congregation. Let us love one another. Let us carry one another's burdens. Let us have compassion over one another. Let us forgive one another. And let us be. Kingdom citizens with kingdom mindsets. God, and I, just, I pray for people in here who, God, who aren't saved, that they would recognize that salvation comes when we're at the end of ourselves and realize that Christ is the only way to the kingdom. That Christ on the cross for our sins is where love and mercy came together, that God loved the world, that he gave his son, that whoever would believe, whoever would trust in him, as the only way to salvation, would be saved. And I pray there would be people in this room that repent and turn away from a life lived for themselves and would turn to you as the only way to salvation and the only way into the kingdom and the only way to receive kingdom happiness that you've promised to all of your children who set their mind on your kingdom. God, even as we finish, I pray that our hearts match our voices, that we would sing to you, looking forward to the kingdom that is to come, but rejoicing in the down payment of the kingdom that you have here in our church. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.